0: Not very good dinner conversation so far, is it? It's kind, of, it's kind of one way at this point. You get that picture? Here's the reason. Because it's a setup. This meal, although on the outside it looks like a great opportunity to connect and really talk and fellowship and all those things, this is a setup. We see it in the first two verses. First of all, we see that it took place on the Sabbath. Sabbath. That doesn't tell us much other than this is the third time in the book of Luke and the final time where Jesus is going to be doing a miracle on the Sabbath day. He did it on purpose to show that he is Lord of the Sabbath. To show that it's not about following the rules, it's about following him as the Lord. So this is the third and final time he's going to do it on the Sabbath. We also know, we see in the verse 2, it's the home of a prominent Pharisee, most likely a leader in the Sanhedrin someone who had authority, someone who people looked up to, who had invited Jesus to come and be a part of this lunch, this banquet together. And it says, it gives us a little bit of insight in verse 2. It says the guests, all those that were invited there that day, were carefully watching Jesus. He was under the microscope. Now, some of that could have been want to get to know him, but we know from earlier chapters in Luke that most of it was, let's see if we can nail this guy to the wall. Let's see if we can find something in either what he says or does that we can go, okay, there it is, we're done. And we can call him out on it and nail him on it. That's what was really going on. Now, most of the guests at that particular meal would have been fellow Pharisees and experts in the law, Jesus refers to them, But there happens to be a man there with swelling, the swelling of the joints, swelling of body tissues, edema, most likely. We don't know exactly what what it was, but he had abnormal swelling. He was miserable. He needed someone to help. But what we don't see is that most likely, just knowing the Pharisees and who they would have invited into their banquets, most likely this person was there as a plant. He was put there for the express purpose of trapping Jesus. We know that the Pharisees saw ailments, sickness often as a sign of God's judgment. Something's going on here. This is a setup. The table's spread, but the trap is set in verses one and two. So I love what Jesus does. He immediately turns the table on them. And They attempt to put him in a no-win public situation, but he's going to turn it right back around, so he asks them a very loaded question. And here's the question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Good question, but it's a loaded question. And here's what he's getting at. By lawful, he's referring to two things. Is it lawful according to your Pharisaic regulations that you've added on? Or is it lawful according to the Old Testament and God's law? There's really two aspects that are playing out here. According to their regulation, the rabbinic and the ones that were added on, it was not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. They considered it work, and it went against the commandment. And so any kind of healing was just doing work on the Sabbath, and so it was forbidden unless there was a danger to their, the person's life. Their immediate, If their life was immediately in danger, you could do it. That was the one exception. But otherwise, it was just forbidden. And so Jesus, in their eyes, was breaking their rule. But in the Old Testament, in God's law, there was no law against healing and doing things, mercy and compassion, on God's day, the Sabbath day. That wasn't a breaking of God's law. So he puts them in a, the reason it was a loaded question, he puts them in this predicament. If they say yes, then guess what? They're authorizing Jesus to break their own rule. And they're going to come off as hypocritical and a little bit soft on holding to the law. So if they say yes, uh-oh. But if they say no, they're going to come across as uncaring, inhumane to this individual who was obviously needing some help. They're going to come off as choosing tradition over people. So what do they do? Zip. They're silent. They're not gonna answer this one because if they go either direction, Jesus has got them. He's got them in a bind. And I think they've learned by now too that every time they open their mouth when questioning Jesus, it just doesn't go well. So they're just gonna stay silent at this point. But I love what Jesus does. He responds in compassion. And it says he took hold of the man and healed him. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for you and me? He takes hold of us in compassion and he heals us. That's the gospel right there, isn't it? Instead of providing evidence against Jesus, this healing now provides evidence for Jesus. It proves that he is who he says he is, that he is God, that he is a compassionate person that he loves people so it's really going south on him real quick here so now before they have a chance to object or say anything Jesus follows it up with a second question in verse 5 and 6 before they could speak he says if one of you has a child or an ox and it falls into a well on the Sabbath you just hypothetical here will you not immediately pull that thing out of the well Is that really a question? I don't think it is. I think it's more of a rhetorical, no duh, I think. And I love what Jesus does here. He pulls them right into the story. He says, if one of you has a son or an ox, so he's not letting them off the hook. He's pulling them into the story and asking them a rhetorical question. The obvious answer being absolutely yes. As a dad, If my son were to fall into a well and it happened to be on the Sabbath, of course I would pull him out of the well to save his life. I would show kindness and compassion to my own son. The reality is this man was somebody's son, just not theirs. That's the reality here that Jesus was pointing out. Jesus exposed a couple things about them. Number one, their calloused heart. They were using this man simply as a pawn in their game of trying to trap Jesus. So he's exposing them for that, their calloused heart, but he's also, he's exposing them for the fact that they were putting their rules over caring for people. They cared more about their rules than they did about anything else. It's called legalism, trying to please God by following all the rules rather than just following God and trusting him. Jesus didn't come to win arguments. He came to win people, to win souls. Jesus never broke God's commandments, but he often broke man's rules. You get that in the Gospels? He was sinless. He followed God's law completely. But he loved to mess with man's regulations over here, didn't he? I love the stories of how he he did that constantly. In this passage, in these first six verses, we see four characteristics of hypocrites. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites because he knew their heart. That's why he could do that. Here's four characteristics that we see in this passage of hypocrites. Number one, they study the word for ammunition against others, but don't apply it to themselves. They knew the law better than anybody else, but guess what? They used it as ammunition rather than coming alongside and assisting people and helping people with it. You know, James 1 says, the word of God is like a mirror that I look into. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me when I look at a mirror, the first person I see is myself. Is that true? I go to the mirror because I wanna see myself. I need to see myself in the morning. I need to shave, I need to get looking good for y'all. So I look at the mirror. I don't go to the mirror to find your faults, to see what you look like, to see how I can apply God's word to your life. God's word is written for me. I need to start with me and look to apply it here first rather than looking out there at y'all. That's what Jesus was saying to them. The tendency with the hypocrites was they tended to look at everybody else and ignore their own lives that were a mess. That's hypocrisy. Hypocrites try to bring down anyone who confronts them with their sin. That's why Jesus was there at that lunch. They were trying to bring him down. Wouldn't be the last time, as we read through the book of Luke, they're gonna continue to do this. But that's what hypocrites do. Hypocrites care more about man-made rules than about people. It's very clear in this passage that they did. This man was suffering. Sitting in their company was the healer. He could do something about it. All they cared about was following the rule, the legalism. Hypocrites bend the rules for their own purpose, but apply them rigidly to others. They would fidget a little bit when it came to their own lives. And Jesus called them out on this several times in the Gospels. They would tweak the rules when it was appropriate for themselves, but boy, they were hard on everybody else and they were rigid. You do this or else. That's what hypocrisy is. So Jesus, he's at this meal, but there's some things he wants to teach. So he continues on in verses seven through 11. He's gonna talk about humility. Look what he says. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, So that's an important sentence there. He told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But... When you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus turns to the guests who were there at that lunch, and he speaks to them on how do you act when you're invited to this wedding feast? And from being watched, Jesus, in the first sentence there, for the second verse, it says he was being watched. Now he focuses his attention on them. And he notices something very interesting. It says in verse seven, he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor. So he's going to give them some instruction here related to that. Hmm. They're all fighting moving around, trying to pick the best spot, there's something I need to teach them. Number one is how not to seat yourself, verses 7 through 9. He noticed the Pharisees picking places of honor at the table. Luke eleven forty three 43 gives us some insight. We read this earlier on, but how the Pharisees thought when it came to sitting. It says, woe to the Pharisees Because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. It's just what you do as a Pharisee. You want the best seat at the meal. You want the best seat in the synagogue. You want people to notice you as you walk through the marketplace. It's all about what's on the external. It has nothing to do with the heart. And that's who these people were. And Jesus is calling out on them. There's a pride that needs to be dealt with. They would sit according to rank. That's how they would do it. Jesus observed this undignified scramble for seating. That's really what he was watching. Now, I mentioned this, I think a couple Sundays ago, we were talking about a meal in the Pharisees' home in chapter seven, and the sinful woman came in and anointed Jesus' feet. Do you remember that story? And I mentioned then, when we think of a banquet and tables and chairs, that's our culture. We sit in chairs, we have tables that are, you know, sit here. That's not the culture that Jesus lived in and that's not what was going on here. In their culture, everything was down on the ground, maybe on a mattress or they called them couches, but you would recline when you ate. You wouldn't sit at a chair. They would recline on their left elbows. So picture this. They're all scrambling around trying to find the best seat, reclining. Elbows are flying. It would have been just this awkward scene. And Jesus is just probably laughing a little bit at it, watching it, going, really? Come on. And he just saw this bumping, bruising, going for the seat, everybody awkward. Oh, am I better than you or not? And trying to rank themselves on the... In the spur of the moment, it just must have been a weird deal. And Jesus says, that's not how you live life. There's something that they need to see. Now, when they had their meals, normally the room would have been set up kind of in a U-shaped with the person of honor kind of in the, I guess, the base or the middle of the U. That's where the person of honor would have sat. Person on their left would have been next in line, person on their right, third. Do you remember the passage, I think it's in Matthew 20, where James and John's mother comes to Jesus and says, I want to request something, Lord. When you come into your kingdom, I want my two sons to sit on your right and your left. What was she saying? I want James and John, my sons, to have the places of honor next to you when you are in your kingdom. That's what she was referring to. And that's what was going on here. So left or right, everybody's trying to get, be closest to that person, the guest of honor, as possible. That's really the deal. And there's something else that one of the commentaries pointed out, this idea of lateness. It was common for those of higher rank to arrive later. It's just kind of a cultural thing to arrive a little bit after the fact. So. Jesus basically in his teaching now is going to exposit a Hebrew prophet that they, or Hebrew proverb that they would have known. It's Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Here's what it says. Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence. Do not claim a place amongst his great men. It's better for him to say to you, come up here, than for him to humiliate you before the nobles. So what Jesus is saying, don't assume or don't automatically or strive for the best seat in the house because it could happen that someone with a higher rank is going to come along later and you're going to be asked to move. And it's going to be very shameful and very humiliating. I don't know if you remember, but I I grew up loving the trailblazers. And in my day early on, it was the Memorial Coliseum. One of the things I loved about blazer games was in those days at the Coliseum, you could go right down to the court. In those days, it was a much smaller venue and didn't have all the extra stuff. You could go down to the court and watch the players warm up before the game. I used to love doing that, standing down their court level. Well, there was one game I was at with my buddy, and we're standing down there, we're watching them warm up. The horn blows, you know, they get ready to go through the game. And we noticed kind of court side area, just up a little bit from the court, there were some empty seats. Well, my tickets were guess where, right? Where I always end up in the nosebleeds, you know? The old Coliseum wasn't that bad, as opposed to the Rose Garden, but it was still high and up there. So I said to my buddy, you know, what do you think? Nobody, you know, we're down here already. It's like, let's just grab a seat. So we had a seat and we're sitting there, you know, having a good time. Guess what? You know the story, right? somebody shows up with legitimate tickets to the actual seats and the usher with them says to my buddy and I get lost go to your seats and so he I remember the usher checking our tickets and go, you know pointing you know <laughs> you're up there and so there's that humiliation it's a very humbling experience now so here we are me and my buddy walking up to the my, our regular seats up in the nosebleed section. That's what Jesus is talking about. As, don't assume places of importance in your life. Show humility, because you, you might end up being humbled. In their culture, this was important. Honor and shame was part of their culture. You know, there's different cultures, have different things that are important to them. I came across an article called Three Colors of, of worldview, and it was a fascinating article because it talked about cultures that have different values. In our culture, in Western culture here and in Europe, we live in innocence and guilt culture. The things that are important to us are law, punishment, our rights, those are important to us. That's our culture. Well, in the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day, it was honor and shame. In fact, it was more important to live and die with honor than anything else. Your reputation, your name was important in that culture. So to be humiliated in that manner meant to lose face. It wasn't a good thing, and that's what Jesus was pointing out. Humility doesn't demand the best seat, but it's willing to take the least, the lowest seat. Pride will always result in public disgrace. So how do you seat yourself? Verse 10 and 11. Instead of doing that, Jesus said, but when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up. Guess what, I have seats closer. It's available, I want you to sit closer to me rather than being sent out to the nosebleed, so to speak. This idea that starting low humbly Understanding who we are, and then the master inviting us to come closer. What I see is a picture of the gospel. Humbly, we understand who we are. We're a sinner. We understand that without Christ, we bring nothing to the table. But when we turn it all over to him as our Lord and Savior, he says, Hey, guess what? I have a place for you. I have a place of honor for you because you're in Christ. You're part of my family now. That's the honor. I love that story. It's Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, is the first passage that came to my mind. I know that you're familiar with this, but this is the story of Jesus. He modeled it for us. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. What was that? Who, being in very nature God, he was God but he did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing he took the very nature of a servant by he being made in human likeness being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross so here's the he took the humble seat he took on flesh Took our sins to the cross to the lowest point you could possibly go. But it didn't end there, did it? Because God, the Father, raised him up. Here's what it says God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the gospel. Because of Christ humbling himself, taking our sins to the cross, and rising again. I loved it that the songs, we sang that this morning. Because of the resurrection, now in Christ, because our sins are taken care of, now we can be exalted to a high place. And that's the story, this great reversal. Those who humble, those who exalt themselves, guess what? You're going to be sent out to the cheap seats. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a passive verb there. God is doing this. God will humble you. God will exalt you. But it starts with humility. And here's the story of the gospel. Humility is the door through which we need to enter into the room of grace. Understanding who we are without Christ, understanding our need for confession, recognizing that we have nothing in ourselves to bring to the equation. That's the door that we enter into the room of grace. It's a gift that God gives us, isn't it? When I grow in grace, I grow in humility. James chapter four is a beautiful passage that speaks of this. He gives us more grace. Do you need more grace? I do. Every day, I need more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives favor or grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, then. It's humility, isn't it? Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Wow, what's going on there? Well, this is an understanding in humility who we are. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before Lord. He will lift you up. There's the same story, isn't it? Humble yourselves and you will be lifted up. Verses 12 to 14, Jesus focuses attention away from the guests for a moment to the host of the party. Look what he says in verses 12 to 14. Jesus says to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. Instead, but, when you give a banquet, invite who? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Really? (laughs) That's the group I want at my banquet? Yeah. And you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous so he speaks to the host who do you invite now jesus knew this in the heart of the host so he can speak it he knew they invited people for two reasons number one to pay them back for being invited in the past it was probably a payback thing they had been invited so then you invite others it was this payback thing that happened and secondly to put that person under debt so that they will invite you to their event. Jesus knew this is what they thought, this is how they lived, this whole idea of looking for payment back. And no matter what you did, it was all about what it looked like on the outside. So who not to invite in verse 12, the people that you would assume you would invite. Now Jesus is not saying, that you never invite your friends or your relatives or your rich neighbors. It's not so much that. What Jesus is saying is you need a motive check here. What's going on in your heart? Why are you inviting those people? That's the issue. It's not even the people that you invite. It's why. It's what is the motive behind your invitation. It's this quid pro quo. It's this reciprocity. That's a tough word, isn't it? You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. It's all about payment. Do we do things to be seen by others, to be repaid by others? Or do we do them just out of the compassion of our heart? That's what Jesus is talking about here. The same thing can be applied to us today. Do we extend generosity to others, knowing and not expecting pay back in return? But who do you invite? He mentions four poor, crippled, lame, blind. Hmm. Fellowship, our fellowship, and again, how does this apply to you and me? Fellowship should not have social limits attached to it. That's what Jesus is saying. Who is on our guest list? When we talk about receiving people, talking to people about the gospel, who is on our guest list? Is it a very exclusive list of people we're very comfortable with, or is it people that need it? The blind, the lame, the crippled, etc.? That's what Jesus is getting at, this idea of generosity. God offers his salvation to us knowing that we were unable to pay and we are unable to pay. That's the gospel. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, unable to pay, right? Christ died for us. It wasn't quid pro quo with him. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. It was, I wanna do something for you. And you need to simply accept this by faith. And receive this free gift that I'm going to offer. And that's what Jesus was saying. Our reward won't always be on this earth, but it will be extended to us in eternity. And he mentions that. This idea that God will repay in the resurrection of the righteous. There will be a day, it's called the judgment seat of Christ for those of us that know Jesus. Where we will be rewarded for things that we did. There will be reward for it. It will be acknowledged. You might not always get that here on this Earth. But even if you don't, guess what? There's a blessing to showing generosity to other people here, as well as in eternity, isn't there? There's a real blessing that comes with that. Daniel 12 verses 12 to th- verses two to three, this is an incredible passage, and think about it in the terms of, this is the Old Testament. This is a prophet of God, Daniel, look what he says about this. He says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Honor and shame, culture, right? Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever Daniel says there's going to be a resurrection for both, those that are righteous, those that are not, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Wow, that's pretty clear, isn't it? So, who do we want to be? We want to be like those who will shine like the brightness of the heavens those that are leading many to righteousness. We wanna be sharing our faith. We wanna be pleading this to others so that they can come to know Jesus. That's the reality. Well, Jesus wasn't done. Somebody in the crowd pipes up. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Amen. And everybody in that banquet would have said amen. Yes, preach it, brother, this is good. But what Jesus wants them to know is they need to listen a little bit closer. So he goes into a great parable. Jesus replies, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, I must go and see it, please excuse me. Excuse number one. Excuse number two. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, I'm on my way to try them out. Test drive. Please excuse me. Excuse number three in verse 20. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come, I'm a newlywed. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Does that sound familiar? Verse 13, he just used that, those same four. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Ooh, We still got some empty seats here. Then the master told his servants, go out to the roads, the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Verse 15, there's a very kind of a proud exclamation here. It's an attempt to relieve the tension, to kind of fill the awkward silence that had been building up as Jesus was just nailing them, talking about humility and generosity and getting to the hard issues, it would be like, hey, how about those blazers? Just kind of free the tension in the room a little bit, something everybody could talk about, everybody would agree on. In their thinking, we talked about this last week, if you were a God-fearing Jew in that culture, you were automatically a member in the kingdom of God. You were at the banquet. Your ticket was punched. And Jesus taught last week in the last chapter, guess what? That isn't necessarily true. So what this gentleman was trying to do was saying, hey, we're all part of this kingdom. Isn't that great? Can I get an amen from the crowd here? And everybody was trying to ignore the subject, but Jesus wouldn't let them. And he turns the subject back to the reality of the kingdom of God and what is really going on. Some of these assumptions that they had that were not accurate at all. And he tells this great parable, verses 16 and 17. There's this great banquet that's being prepared for. In their minds, this was the messianic banquet. It was all through the Old Testament. There's one passage in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8, that gives a description of this. And here it is: on this mountain, the Lord Almighty is going to prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord, he's going to wipe away the tears from all faces. He's going to remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord. Has spoken. There's going to be this messianic feast and the Lord's going to reign over it all. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. They knew about this feast. We know about a feast too. In the book of Revelation, it talks about a time. We're there, we're celebrating a feast. But he wants to get beyond some of the false assumptions that were being made by the people. Now, two invitations were given. The first one was, hey, there's gonna be a feast, I want you to come, and all these people had RSVP'd, and they said, we'll be there, so the food had been purchased, everything was set, but there was a second invitation, it was the day of. The day of the banquet, now the servant goes out and says, okay, feast is here, the food is ready, it's time to come, come on in, this is it. So there were two invitations that had gone out. The first invitation, everybody said, we'll be there. Yep, we're good to go. They've given their RSVP. The day of, as the servant goes out and says, okay, it's ready. The food's hot. Guess what? They started to come up with these excuses, and they bailed out last minute. He invited many guests. I love that. That's the story. All peoples, Isaiah. It's a feast not just for the Jews, okay, in that culture, in that time, but this is a feast for all peoples, all nations. It's offered. That's the story of salvation. It's freely offered to all people. But they start with excuses. Now, there are legitimate excuses, right? I mean, we've all been invited to something and said, I'll be there, and then we get sick. Happened to me. I was invited to a dinner, I was looking forward to it literally the day of, I just got sick. And it wasn't a lame excuse, sick, it was, I was down and out. So we had to call and cancel. So there are legitimate excuses. We've sent out an invitation for the welcome lunch after church today to all those that are new to us. And the, the invitation went out and some people said, we'll be there, great. Other people said, hey, I can't. Got something else going. Legitimate excuses. We all know what those are. But we also know lame excuses, don't we? And the reality is, if we were honest with each other, we would say there's been times where we've put up a lame excuse to get out of something. Oh, I don't feel well. Well, you know, there's a little sniffle, but. Or relatives are in town, you know, there's those classic, excuses, but the reality behind these excuses, all three of them were, and they, on the surface they looked legit, but underneath they were not, they were lies. Putting issues of everyday life ahead of the kingdom, these were important things, land, oxen, important, marriage, yeah, that's very important. But putting those things ahead of the kingdom. Now, the reality is all three of these excuses could have waited until after the banquet, if you think about it. That's why they're lame. They weren't really a legitimate one. The evangelist Billy Sunday, a great man who preached the gospel, thousands came to know Jesus because of him. He had a great quote, and here it is, about excuses. He says... Excuses are the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. How's that for a beautiful statement? Excuses are the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Ooh, let me read this. It comes from a commentary by a gentleman named Kent Hughes, a great writer, a great thinker. Jesus' parable does not demean our possessions, fields and oxen or our affections, our loved ones, the marriage, the wedding, these are legitimate. We certainly ought to check our land, try our oxen, give pleasure to our loved ones. In fact, the more a man lives upon the feast that is in Christ, the more fit he would be for all these other enjoyments. Those are fine, but that's not the point. The field will be better tended, the oxen better utilized, his wife more tenderly and sacredly loved. But if our possessions and affections be so preferred that they become excuses to turn down Christ's feast, our thinking is absurd, our souls in danger. The real reason the three invitees offered their lame excuses was that they really did not want to go to the feast. You know what the truth is? That's the truth. Their excuses that, in their minds, made attendance at the feast impossible would have evaporated if They really wanted to be there. We all know there's things that we will get to regardless. And then there are other things that we will allow excuses to get in the way of. We all have those things. If somebody were to call me and say, hey, I have two tickets to a Blazer game tonight, it would have to be an incredibly good excuse for me to say no. I would more likely say, well, I have something going, but..." I'll see if I can shift it. I want to go. That's important to me, right? We know it's important. Their excuses in their minds would have evaporated if they really wanted to be there. In today's terms, if they were offered front row seats at the NBA championships, okay, or box seat to hear the three tenors, or a week's fly fishing on the Madison, this is a river in his area, or a week's shopping in Paris, for some of you that's your thing, They would have found someone to tend the field, the oxen, and yes, even the home. Make no mistake, the real reason people turn away from the eternal feast is they do not want to be there. They have no appetite for higher things. Wow. We're getting down to the core of what Jesus was getting at here with the excuses. They're lame. So what does he do? Cancel the feast? Okay, well, that messed up my... Feast, we'll just move on. Sorry, uh, we'll give this food away, I guess. this. This is God's will, that the feast will go on. Man's choice is what I do, does not get in the way of God's will whatsoever. The feast will go on. There's a different and an unlikely set of guests that God wants to invite to the feast. So he tells his servant, I want you to go out into the streets and alleys Of the town invite. There they are, those same four words. The lame, the poor, the blind, etc. Those are the four words, interestingly enough, that are a picture of what sin does to us. Now, in Jesus' day, I think the reference there, the streets and the alleys of the town, they were still in the town, but they just weren't invited maybe to the original feast. These are Jewish outcasts. They would have been part of the Jewish community but maybe not important enough so jesus says go out and invite them to come in and the servant says already done but man there's still some seats we need to fill it so the master says okay here's what i want you to do i want you to go out to the roads and the country lanes get out of the city get out there in the hedges go find people go way out there What's going on is further down the social ladder, which would have been the Gentiles in in Jesus' day. The kingdom for the Pharisees, those that follow God closely, the in-group, first invitees. Second invitees, those in the Jewish family that weren't part of this. But I want you to think even further outside your little box. How about those Gentiles that you would never think of inviting to this feast? Go get them. And they're out there, they're outside the city, they're in the roads and the hedges. Jews first and the Greeks. Does that sound familiar? Romans 1 16. Classic verse. This was the theme of the whole series of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, yeah, it came to the Jews first. So that was God's people where it started, the Messiah. But also to the Greek. Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. There's the city. Judea, region. Samaria, uh-oh. We're getting, you know, you're getting outside the box there with the Samarians. But don't even let it end there. Go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what's going on here to this banquet. So we get a little understanding, and I love what he says. Compel them to come. Compel them to come. An invitation is going out, but it's more than an invitation now. This is important. I want you to compel them. Why would he use that word? What's going on there? I think it's, it's not about forcing them if they're not interested But being urgent about it, it's overcoming their reluctance because what's going to happen is as you extend an invitation, they're going to say, we're not worthy of that. They're not going to feel like they can reciprocate and give anything back. And what I want you to say to them is it does not matter. Compel them to come. Compel them. There's a great verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through him, we implore you, there's that same idea, compelling, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When we talk about evangelism and caring and sharing the good news with our friends, it's about compelling. It's an urgency, and they might say, hey, I'm not worthy of that, or why would I need that? And what you need to do is be urgent about this and say, I'm begging you here, be reconciled to God. We are Christ's ambassadors. When I was a student at Multnomah Bible School, MSB, Multnomah School of the Bible, back in the day, many years ago, they were the ambassadors. And I love that. We used to sing a little song. Kevin, you know this one. Some of you, Amanda, you know this one. We're ambassadors for Christ, and we would sing it after each game. Then they changed their they changed their name over to the Lions, which sounds a little more regal, a little more, you know. But I'm sad that they lost the ambassador thing because we're ambassadors for Christ. That's what we need to be about. But see God's heart in this. He invites those who are often left out. That's God's heart. Yeah, they might not always be invited by us. Guess what? God cares. He wants them to be part of his banquet Number two, he wants a full house. There's some seats available. It ain't full yet. We've got room. Keep inviting. Let's get some people in here. That's the heart of our God, his compassion. Verse 24, just kind of a final warning. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Ooh. I think it's a little dig there, back to verse 15, when this guy hey, how about this banquet? You know, isn't this great and fantastic? There's a warning here, a subtle warning, and Jesus says that be careful that you're assuming that you're in when you're really not. Be careful. And I would say the same thing to you. Be careful with assumptions. It's only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a narrow door. We talked about that last week, right? And it's a door that will be closed. So be careful about assuming anything but it's through faith in Jesus Christ that we enter into that banquet, into a relationship with the king. That's how it comes. So just a couple things to think about. Legalism. Jesus attacked the Pharisees often. Why? Because of pride. Be careful about our pride. Pride takes away compassion for other people and vision for other people. We just care about self. That's not what we're called And it leads to hypocrisy. We don't want that any part of our life, do we? We need to grow in humility and generosity. That's the calling upon the life of every believer. But it's in those two things that we see the gospel. Humility is understanding who I am before God, and it's the door to God's grace. When I grow in humility, I grow in grace and in the knowledge of my Lord and Savior. And The gospel, it's not about paying back to God anything. It's about saying thank you. Responding to the, here's the word that appears 10 times in this passage, invitation. The invitation's gone out. God has sent it out to the whole world, to the ends of the earth and saying, I have a banquet that you're invited to come to. So what are you going to do? Are you going to come and accept the invitation or are you going to make the lame excuses? and say, well, that sounds great, but this is more important. There's nothing more important. This is the, we're talking about the kingdom of God all eternity, being with Him, being in a relationship with Him. That's the most important thing, forget about our excuses. And we have a lot of good ones. Let Him go, accept the free invitation. There's a great quote by a guy named Stephen Cole, I'm gonna end with this and then one verse. One of the main hindrances that will keep you from having dinner with Jesus is that you're so full of your own goodness that you won't acknowledge your need for his banquet. Guess what? We're going to see this next week, Luke 15. So full, there was a brother, there were two brothers, one so full of his own goodness that he didn't want a part of the banquet. Hmm, interesting. Your pride will make you say, I'll bring the salad and dessert. But the Lord says, nope, I'm going to provide it all. You just come. That's the invitation. Just a closing thought, Revelation 19, to wrap this up. This idea of a banquet is throughout Scripture, and it's for us. And here it is. I heard this, what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty, he reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding, oh, there's a wedding here, wedding feast. The wedding of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. You're invited. Why don't you come?